The sermon text for this morning is John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21, as we continue in our series through the Gospel of John. There we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This text before us this morning is a continuation of the account of when Jesus met with Nicodemus, a Pharisee, who came to Jesus at night because Nicodemus wanted to know more about Jesus and more specifically about what he was teaching. Now, Nicodemus, we know, was a very influential leader in Judaism, so he came as a representative of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body, in order to interrogate Jesus. And we learn from these verses before us this morning, first about how God loved the world. In Jesus' explanation to Nicodemus, we learn first about how God loved the world. We note again verse 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now as we saw last week, the word so in this verse reveals two very important things. It reveals the degree to which God loves us. It reveals the depths of God's love for you and for me, for his people. He loved us, we read, before Jesus died for us. He so loved us while we were still sinners. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, that God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul and, and God's word throughout drives home this reality that there is nothing lovely and nothing lovable about us outside of Christ, that we are born dead in sin, deserving of God's just judgment, and yet in our deadness and in our sinfulness, that's when God set his love upon us. A wonderful picture of this kind of love is found in the book of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet who was sent by God to preach to Israel. He was sent to warn the nation that if they did not repent of their sins, they would suffer the consequences of their unfaithfulness. They would suffer 
curses of the covenant. And we read that the Lord instructed Hosea to go and preach to the people, to call them to repentance, to remind them of, of God's great covenant faithfulness and of their own obligations to the Lord. So he was to preach to them, but the Lord also called Hosea to, to dramatize, to act out in his own life uh, a very real um, picture of what uh, God's love looked like, the love that he set upon his people. And so God commanded Hosea to marry a prostitute. And that's what Hosea, the man of God, did. He married a woman named Gomer. See, this was a very powerful picture for Israel to see because uh, women like Gomer were among the most reviled in society. They were a class of people who were considered the most godless and, and sinful. This is why people in Jesus' day were scandalized when Jesus even just talked to such women. So what God was demonstrating to Israel through Hosea's life is, among other things, that he chose to love his people even though they were in a state of sin and rebellion against him. In fact, later in the book of Hosea, uh, there's this uh, instance in which Gomer uh, leaves Hosea to return to her life of sin, and Hosea uh, sought her out and redeemed her. We read that he paid the redemption price of 15 shekels of silver to buy her out of slavery. Now that, that story, in that story, Gomer was a picture of Israel and of all God's people. It's a picture in that while we were still in sin, unworthy and unlovely as Gomer was in that society, God set his love upon us and in time sent his son to redeem us out of our slavery to sin. And this is what verse 16 is, is driving home, that God sent his son into the world, into a world that hated him, into a world that rejected him. And that word world in John 3.16 refers to fallen humanity. It refers to people who live in opposition to God. And, and we live in opposition to God because we are born fallen in sin. It's a result of the fact that when Adam and Eve sinned against God, they did so in treason as a, as a response to God's love to them. Instead, they responded to him in disobedience. And the sin that they committed, the guilt for that sin, the condemnation for that sin, was then imputed to all of their descendants. See, Adam, when he sinned, he sinned as our federal head, our representative before God. And so before God, when we are outside of Christ, we are all like Gomer. We are godless, depraved, fallen. And John 3.16, we read that in that state... God so loved us. He loved us deeply. He loved us intentionally. The word so reveals the degree to which God loves us, loved us, and it also reveals the way in which he loved us. We read that he sent his only son. As one Bible translation translates verse 16, for this is how God loved the world. 
He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This is not just the degree but now the way in which he loved us. He loved us so much that he gave his one and only son. The emphasis here is on one and only and the emphasis is to drive home the great cost of our redemption. This language reminds us of Genesis chapter 22, that, that test that God placed before Abraham. It reminds us of the great passage there in which God commanded Abraham to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. This was God's way of testing Abraham's faith. We read in Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 2, that after these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. That repetition to Abraham, that this is your son, your only son, whom you love, was driving home the preciousness of Isaac. And it was revealing ultimately, how God would show his love for his people by giving his one and only son, just as Abraham was commanded to do. We learn the depths of God's love and the way in which he demonstrated it here in verse 16 of John chapter 3. But secondly, we learn in our passage this morning from verses 17 through 19 why God demonstrated his love in this way. Why did God send his son into the world? Verses 17 through 19 explains, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Now these verses get at the purpose, the reason behind why God sent Jesus. It was not to condemn the world, but we read it was to save the world through him. That word condemn is often used in the Gospel of John in a negative sense. It means uh, to pass judgment. And it's often used in contrast or as an opposite of salvation. Condemnation means to receive the just judgment of God for sin. And so verse 17 clarifies why God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but in order to bring salvation. And, you know, this this brings up an important question, doesn't it? God sent his son into the world in order to bring salvation. The question that arises is salvation from what? What are we ultimately saved from? Well, in his book, by the title Saved From What? Dr. R.C. Sproul answers this very question. He tells the story of when in 1969 he was caught off guard by a man on the street who asked him, are you saved? 
And at that time, uh, Dr. Sproul was a professor of theology in Philadelphia. And yet, even given this fact that he was a professor of theology, uh, he says that he was caught off guard by the man's question. Uh, he says, I wasn't sure quite how to respond. So, he says, I uttered in response the first words that came into my mind. Saved from what? Sproul goes on to say that the man who stopped me that day was as surprised by my question as I had been of his. The man began to stammer and stutter. Obviously, the man wasn't quite sure how to respond. Friends, I want to ask you this morning, how would you answer that question? What do we need to be saved from? In fact, let's broaden the question out. How would the majority of the people in the world today answer that question? Well, I would say that, you know, judging by what uh, I see in the news headlines, um, I would say that most people feel that we primarily need to be saved from big issues like climate change, uh, economic inequality, uh, war, and violence. These big issues that are constantly recurring in our headlines. These are just a few of the many problems that so many people are consumed with or anxious about. But what does the Bible say is our main issue, our main problem? What does the Bible say is the main thing that you and I need to be saved from? The Apostle Paul clarifies the gospel by explaining to us what we need to be saved from. He writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, speaking about the second coming of Christ, he says that we wait for God's Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The Apostle Paul here emphasizing that we need to be saved from the wrath to come, the wrath of God against sin. The wrath of God that will be unleashed against sinners by Jesus' righteous judgment on the last day. Sproul explains his point in his book. He says, uh, what do we need to be saved from? We need to be saved from God. Not from kidney stones, not from hurricanes, not from military defeats. What every human being needs to be saved from is God. The last thing in the world the unrepentant sinner ever wants to meet on the other side of the grave is God. But the glory of the gospel is that the one from whom we need to be saved is the very one who saves us. God is saving us from himself. And Sproul concludes, woe to those who have no savior on the day of wrath. And God Loved ones, provides this salvation through Jesus, our Savior. Listen again to verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We read last week from Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, about the promise that Joseph received from the angel. The promise was that um, 
the angel speaking to Joseph said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We know that the Greek form of the Hebrew name uh, Joshua is in Greek Jesus, which means God saves. Jesus means God saves, and this was the angel's way of bringing a message from God to Joseph and ultimately to the whole world. This is the great purpose, the great reason why God has sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save his people from their sins. And so we, through scripture, hear not only the promise of what Jesus would do there in Matthew and and throughout the Old Covenant, but we see the fulfillment of that promise. We know that what the angel spoke to Joseph that day truly came to pass on the cross. We know that through Jesus, God has saved us from the wrath to come. And our passage this morning emphasizes that it's not just a few people in the world that need this salvation. It's not just a few people that are born dead in sin. It's not just a few people that need Christ's righteousness in order to stand before God. But we read that all the world needs this salvation. If you look at verses 18 through 19 of John chapter 3 again, we see that everyone needs the salvation in order to escape God's wrath. Whoever we read beginning in verse 18 believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This is what these verses are getting at, that Jesus did not come to judge the world because he came to a world which already stands condemned, a world in which all of its inhabitants are under the sentence of death. Uh, awaiting the day upon which this sentence will be executed, awaiting the day when the wrath of God will be poured out upon them. And this is the world that Jesus entered into, a world already condemned because of Adam's sin and, and the sins that we commit on a daily basis. But we read that he entered into our world not to pass judgment, but to bear the judgment. This is how he saved his people. He, he bore the wrath of God for our sins. The wrath of God that was to be poured out upon us was instead poured out upon him. And friends, this is, this is the glory of the gospel. This is what Sproul was getting at when he explained that the one from whom we need to be saved is the very one who saves us. God is saving us himself. He did this by placing his wrath upon Christ and Christ willingly humbling himself in order to take away our sins. And so through Jesus, and through his willing humiliation and suffering, through him we are saved from the penalty of our sins. We're saved from the penalty of our sins. We're saved from that sentence of death that was upon all of our heads. We were born children of wrath. He became the propitiation for our sins. Jesus saved us from our sins by bearing our 
condemnation, right? taking that sin upon himself. It was, we read in the gospel, credited or imputed to him. And then the righteous life that he lived before God was credited or imputed to us. So we're saved through Christ from the penalty of our sins. We're also saved from the power of our sins. Because we know that in his ascension, as we read from Philippians chapter 2, in his ascension to the right hand of the throne of God, Jesus sent the Spirit so that we might receive new hearts and minds, so that we might be empowered to die to sin and to live to righteousness. And so even now, the Lord Jesus, by his Spirit, is ruling and reigning in our hearts, giving us strength to overcome sin, to overcome temptation. So we're delivered through Christ from the penalty of our sins, from the power of sin. And the promise of the gospel is that one day we'll, we will be delivered even from the presence of sin. Even the presence of sin will be removed when we will enter into his glorious presence at death and then ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which is um, an excellent summary of our faith, it explains in chapter 32 that after death, the bodies of men decay and return to dust, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal existence, they return immediately to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous are then made perfect in holiness and received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory as they wait for the full redemption of their bodies. What a wonderful promise, loved ones, that, that for those who die in Christ, there won't be a, a state of limbo after death. There won't be a state of purgatory after death in which God's wrath for our sins will, will still be meted out to us. But we read here instead that for those who trust in Christ, Christ has borne that judgment in his body on the tree. The penalty has been paid, and so at death, our souls return immediately to God, and we are then made perfect in holiness and received into the highest heavens. No more sin, no more wrath, no more pain. We will behold the face of God in light and glory as we await the full redemption of our bodies, the final resurrection. And so I want to ask you this morning, loved ones, in light of this glorious promise and in light of why Christ came into the world to save us from the condemnation that was upon us, I want to ask you this morning, where do you stand at this very moment with God? Where do you stand? If we look again at verses 18 through 21, we see that they draw a very clear distinction between those who are in Christ and those who are not those who love the light of Christ and the truth that he brings and those who hate the light and the truth and who reject him entirely. There's no in-between. There's no third category. There's no third group. You're either for him or you are against him. There's nothing in between. The person either trusts in Christ as Savior as the one who bore the wrath of God as their substitute or they don't. Where do you find yourself this morning? 
We see here in these verses a very helpful distinction, helpful distinction that reveals itself practically which category we're in and how we live our lives. It's demonstrated in how we live our lives, whether we are in Christ or not. We see in verse 20 that it says, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light. Now, that word does in verse 20 can also be translated practices or uh, makes a habit of doing. So it is referring to those who practice or who make a habit of doing wicked things. The picture is of a person who sins and who, who doesn't care about what God thinks about it. Now they might you know, feel bad that they hurt somebody else or that perhaps they let their friends and family down, but ultimately they don't give a second thought to the fact that their sin is primarily against God. This is what the Apostle John gets at in his first letter when he talks about this practice of sinning right, with no thought and no conscience before God. It says in 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now John is getting at the fact that a genuine believer, loved ones, does not practice sinning. They, they do not have a life pattern of, of sinful pursuits without a desire to repent, without remorse before God. Why is that? It's because a true believer has been born of God, as we learned earlier in John chapter 3. We've been regenerated. Our greater desire is now to please God rather than to please ourselves. While we do still sin as believers, we have a deep remorse for it before God. We confess our sin and repent of it. We confess that though some sin remains, no sin reigns in our lives. The pattern that we have on the Lord's Day of confessing sin and, and seeking God's assurance of pardon is the pattern that we need to seek daily in our own lives, to come before the Lord acknowledging our sin and seeking his forgiveness. And this is a true demonstration of whether or not we have been born from above. See, John is not saying here that if you are a true believer, you will never struggle with sin. But John is saying that while a believer will continue to struggle with sin, he has made a decisive break with it. Yes, specific sins still show up in the snapshots of our lives, but you know, in the last day, the title of our lives, the book of our lives will not say sin, but it will say Christ, right? because we are in him and we seek his righteousness. And this is because for the true believer, God has worked his gracious work of regeneration into our lives. He has granted us the new birth. He has renewed our minds, enlightened us so that we spiritually and savingly understand the things of God. 
We understand Christ. We love Christ. We seek after him. We want to know him more because our minds have been renewed. They're no longer in darkness and unbelief. He has renewed our emotions. He's renewed our hearts by taking away the heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh so that we now love God and, and we love the things of God. In regeneration, he's, as we said, renewed our minds, our hearts, and even our wills. That we don't just love the things of God, but we desire them. We pursue them. We make a practice of righteousness and not a practice of sinfulness in our lives. As John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 7, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Seeking after the things of God because we are the children of God. And so, friends, I urge you to come to the light of Christ and to be saved, to live in the joy and assurance of knowing that when Christ returns as the judge of all the living, that you will be able to stand in that day, not fearful of condemnation, but assured of your adoption. And when you do stumble in sin, you remember that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. All praise and all glory be to him. Amen. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful truths that we find in your word. We thank you for your law that exposes our sin and our need for Christ and for the gospel, which reveals all that you have done through Christ to accomplish our salvation. We pray that you would grant us assurance that we may trust in Christ, that as we do trust in him, that our sins have been borne by him, that you might increase our joy on a daily basis as we reflect upon the fact that we are no longer in sin, but we are in Christ. And we pray that that reality would be driven home to us all the more as we now sit at this table before us. Bless us, we pray, as we partake of this spiritual feast, that we might be able to discern Christ in these elements and be reminded of the glorious grace that you have shown us uh, through him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.